Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit down with Julian from Monadic to talk about Radical, a decentralized code collaboration platform. Today, we're sitting with Julian Arney from Monadic. Today, we're going to be talking about a programming language that he recently made called Radical. Hi, Julian. Hi. Uh, I think it would be great if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background. I'm Julian. I, I work at Monadic. Um, I've been programming in Haskell for a while and continue to in the context of Monadic. Uh, although my background is actually in philosophy. I studied philosophy as an undergrad and briefly also in grad school. So I was studying mostly philosophy of language and in that context, um, computational linguistics seemed important. So I started going a bit more into that and learning programming somewhere along fairly early on in the process. I um, came across Haskell in particular and realized how elegant programming could be and have been obsessed with it since. Wow, I didn't know that you started from philosophy. Mm. Is that a common path to go from philosophy to it, It's more common than people imagine. Um, there's actually a lot in common between the two. One way of seeing what a philosopher does is having a question or a problem or a difficulty, and then trying to formulate it as formally as possible so that the solution becomes apparent. And in some sense, especially when you see a program declaratively rather than imperatively, that is also what the process of programming is. Um, you have something that you want to be done or a certain behavior that you want a piece of software to exemplify, instantiate. And the process of making that actually happen is specifying very, very precisely what that behavior is. And and that specification is the program. So in some sense, even though they seem quite di distant, um, there's a big similarity. I would also say that um, the history of the two is quite intertwined. The, the way in which computers were invented is in fact sort of from questions in the philosophy of mathematics in particular. And logic too. And no? logic, yeah. 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 Cool. I'm curious to hear how you got from from that and from working in Haskell. I mean, I sort of know you from the Haskell space because I've used some of the libraries that you wrote, and that that's my only context of where where you're coming from. And so, how did you go from there to this decentralized tech space that you're sort of in now? Hmm. I think to some extent there was, even though I've always been interested in programming as a practice, as a sort of um, puzzle-solving, the sort of intellectually stimulating exercise on a daily basis, and there was always some sort of distance between that interest in the, the practice of it and what it was applied in, right? So a lot of, of programming really is um, sort of applications that you don't really need and that maybe are actually making the world in many ways either worse or not improving it as much as, as as programming has the potential to. Part of what I see being the issue there is precisely the sort of monopolizing tendency um, that um, 
that is particularly pre- prevalent in programming, partly because I think the marginal costs of having a new user in the context of programming is so low. All the investment is upfront and in terms of uh, development time. So there's a huge monopolizing tendency. And there is a sort of concern that I think a lot of people share that this new technology is, is leading in, in, in a direction that we don't want to go. So let's talk a little bit about how you're trying to address those things, which is in part radical. And we had uh, Ellie and uh, Alexia on the uh, podcast before to talk about OS Coin, some of the visions of that, uh, of the project as a whole. Radical was sort of teased back then, but we didn't really talk about what it was or what the intention of it was. Essentially, the the dream was to have an open source collaboration platform that also incentivized con- contributions to open source projects. And Radical came out of this. You were at the ZK Summit last time and talked about, like sort of demoed this programming language and how it's sort of a, like a runtime for a decentralized system. But where has it gone from then and like how has it evolved? Because as I understand, it's, it's somewhat different right now. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, so I think where we started off from is this idea of decentralizing the sort of backbone of code collaboration. OS coin, um, so Radical would be responsible for that, and OS coin would be an incentivization layer on top of that. The two projects were much more intertwined originally in the sense that we um had this idea that we would use a blockchain in order to record the state of every repo and so radical was a late, was initially just a programming language which would allow for these transactions that specify uh, the um the various types of interactions that one might have in the course of code collaboration and it would exist in a blockchain what we've since realized is that that we don't need a global consensus on the state of every repository. Um, so really, a blockchain is overkill in this sense. Um, we need consensus to some extent on the state of an individual repository, but not this global view. And a lot of the motivations that we had for um, Radical still remain. These projects have become much more independent. You can use Radical without having any interest in, in OS coin, but there's still something that connects them and there's still motivation. I, I, I still believe that there's a way in which Radical contributes to the OS coin mission. And similarly, the hope is that eventually the development of Radical um, can be financed uh, via OS coin. Ah, but are they separate units? Like, are they separate projects now? Yeah, Under, yeah. What's the What's the top project then so monadic is the company that encompasses both of them okay um but these are a separate project i want to go into what you just described here you said something like originally there was this idea that you needed like a global consensus and now you only need a repo level consensus but when you're talking about like compensating through token Mm -hmm. you still need to have a value associated with that token that is global Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. so i'm just curious like when you when you're talking about that consensus, what is the consensus then? It's not the consensus on whether or not this thing is valuable. It's right. the decision making about pull requests and stuff like that, or what is yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. So, so con- in some sense, you know, when when we're collaborating on on GitHub, there is a consensus view of what a repository looks like at any particular moment in time, and the consensus is very easy because there's one authority. Um, 
that settles that um, and it's a centralized authority. So maybe before we go into some of the more kind of the details of it, what is radical exactly? What is this for? And like, how would somebody use it? So Radical is a stack, a peer-to-peer stack for code collaboration. The one way of thinking of it is it's a GitHub replacement or a GitLab replacement. The crucial difference, the main sort of architectural difference is that you don't need to self-host and you don't need to trust a centralized server. So you can very easily do issue management, for instance. You can have people open issues on your repository and you know comment on it in the way that you're sort of familiar with, although this is currently we built the experience to be terminal first, so in some senses it's different. Um, that'll appeal to some people um, and put off others. Um, but continuing this architectural sort of perspective, there is th- these issues sort of are distributed to, through kept uh, storage on IPFS, um, distributed via that. So there's no need for a centralized server to be managing all this. Uh, that's also true for the, not just for the issues and the patches, which is our term for pull requests, but that's also true for the repository itself. It also exists in IPFS, although you can optionally use a GitHub backend. Now, that's the broad architectural view, but there are also a few sort of possibilities that are enabled by this. A radical, as um, I think was mentioned in in the previous podcast with Ella and Alexi, is also a programming language. So the stack includes a programming language. And this gives you a lot more control over exactly how your issue system works, for instance. In fact, up to that level of the stack, there's nothing that's code collaboration specific. Anything that you build with the radical language, which is designed to have certain properties so that this is true. Anything that you build in this way inherits these properties. One way of looking at it up to that level of the stack, up to radical, is that it's a properly serverless architecture, not a sort of marketing serverless, which still has a server, but a little um, way of sort of writing a small program and this and sending it off into the ether that sort of works without any sort of concern about self-hosting, provisioning and whatnot, but that is truly peer-to-peer. So we've built those levels of the stack, and then on top of that, we've built a code collaboration system. And what that gives us, that architecture gives us, what it gives the user, is really the ability to do and control their system in whatever way they want. I'm curious first to just um, try to break it down a little bit, because, I mean, if you start with Git, Git itself is decentralized and peer-to-peer in some sense that you can put in a remote address of your peer and uh and send them all your updates and there's a consensus uh resolution system called merge conflict (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, but but then you don't get anything you don't get any of the fancy github features with this you don't get pull requests or, or patch like system you don't get issues you don't get user management or or permission management in any sense so i guess it's so you take that fundamental basis of git and then add all of this stuff on top but do it in a peer-to-peer fashion that that's roughly correct i would say really to some extent what we're doing is adding the things that github adds to git but in a peer-to-peer fashion 
But one thing I would say is that this idea that Git is decentralized, well, first of all, decentralized is a very, very complicated <laughs> word. It's more, yeah. it's more a slogan than anything well-defined. And so even though I believe in using it as a slogan, we should like it's always useful to have the sense that in any particular case, we can delve deeper into what exactly it means. And in this case, it's true that you can have, in the case of Git, it's true that you can have uh, multiple remotes, and you can push to all of these remotes, and your computer can be a remote. But there are some problems with this. In particular, you have to agree on what that remote is. In order to collaborate, um, you have to um, sort of agree on what that remote is, and that usually means a particular specific server. And as we notice now, that usually means GitHub. And so the remote is GitHub. And even though we could be using something else, uh, we default to GitHub, and that is still a point of centralization. And it's not easy, um, even though technically it seems very easy to just change a remote, it's not easy to do so in practice because if I decide, for instance, that I want to switch from GitHub to GitLab or CGit or anything else or hosting it on my own server, I have to inform everyone else who's collaborating with me and they have to manually change that remote. Uh, and so the problems that decentralization is trying to solve, namely this tendency for systems, servers, services, companies that we've come to rely on, for us to be less reliant on them, isn't really solved by, by, by Git, by the Git model. Um, Basically, it's... Um possible to use git in a decentralized fashion but you have to manage all of the remotes yourself yeah and the entire like peer set is manually managed and you need to push to all of them and you need to like have some social consensus on what the source of truth is yeah. and everything else yeah. it's just way too hard to actually use it in a decentralized yeah, exactly. way so people end up centralizing it yeah and that's and and sort of having an ipfs backed version of this is uh I think a more thorough solution um, than just saying, "Well, it's Git." Right? Is Git more like a architecture? Is it a is it a protocol? What is it? Is it? It's not a. It's not a language. Is it? I mean, you could either call it a protocol for source code yeah. management, or it's just a program. Okay. It's like. But are you still using that protocol or those protocol ideas, or have you rewritten that? What we currently have is what's called a remote helper. So you would still use Git in the way that you usually do, but your remote has a different URI that encodes the protocol that it's using. And in this case, it's IPFS. And Git, by default, doesn't know how to communicate with a remote that is IPFS-backed. And so we've written a little program that teaches it how to do that. And thankfully, Git has a very sim simple system to sort of incorporate different protocols. So ultimately, you're still using get the command line tool, but with a small add-on that without you sort of being aware of any difference, without any change in your workflow, now works as well with IPFS. So really it's quite wonderful. I think I think this is this is one of those cases where hopefully you're starting to contradict this idea that decentralization or peer-to-peer -peer technologies have to be harder. It's really quite wonderful how you don't need to be aware that this is a peer-to-peer -peer solution to a large extent. You are using, so you're using IPFS in this case. Have mm. you looked into other potential storage solutions? So it should be said, this idea, there's a little bit of a difference between how issues and patches work, which is through the entire radical stack. So you have all of programmability there, and you really can control exactly what you want. Um, it's really a program that's running, whereas Git is really just data. And so it doesn't need to, th to go through the entire radical stack. And 
for the sort of radical components, um, there is a lot of sim similarity to SSB as well. So that could have been an option, although we've considered it and eventually realized that it wasn't quite sufficient. You never uh, considered writing your own P2P stack and doing everything from scratch? <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes we're frustrated with certain technologies in IPFS, that, um, uh, but this is no criticism. I mean, they've taken on so much that it's only natural that there'll be parts of it that aren't quite there yet. But really, I think throughout, we've noticed that, in fact, it's easier to rely upon things that already exist. So your background was in Haskell. I don't know if you already mentioned this, but... Is Radical related at all to your Haskell work? Is there any connection there? So Radical, the programming language, is implemented in Haskell. So again, um, just to be clear, this, this programming language is sort of crucial to bringing programmability to peer-to-peer, -peer, right? Um, we have things like IPFS that are sort of just data, or SSB that are just data in some sense. And Radical is sort of piggybacking on those technologies to bring programmability to it. And it's crucially... It's a deterministic language. There's some sort of conceptual similarity between any pure or deterministic programming language and Haskell. And additionally, Haskell is a really wonderful language in a variety of ways, but in particular for implementing other languages. So, of course, these this Haskell as a technology was a very natural fit. But aside from that, I think you know, that's Not. where it ends, right? In some sense, yeah, as I mentioned, it really hopefully is the case that no one has to be aware of or familiar with Haskell in any way in order to use uh, Radical the stack. I do have a little bit more of a question about like why you need a language. Why isn't this just program? Like, or why, why a stack and a language in this case? So one way of looking at it is, as I sort of mentioned, um, the peer-to-peer -peer web is still roughly where the non-peer-to-peer -peer web was a couple of decades ago in the sense that it's mostly a static idea, right? So you have documents and they, you know, in the case of IPFS, for instance, are content addressable, but they're very much a static idea as if you're serving you know, files on your, on your file system. What we wanted is something much more sort of dynamic, programmable, uh, so that you can sort of say things like, for instance, batches should be immediately rejected and, and considered invalid if they touch upon a specific file in the in, in my repo that I don't want to give anyone besides myself permission for. Right? This is not something you can do on GitHub at all, but it's something that should be possible. You know, if you have the time to spend half an hour programming. Um, you should be able to, to state these things. To some extent, it's always a little bit arrogant to pr program your own programming language. But in another sense, it's also a form of humility, um, in the sense that you admit that you won't be able to foresee every possible eventuality, and you want to give the power to the people who are using it to sort of change their tooling as they see fit. I think there's also a differentiation to be made in trying to write a new general purpose language that replaces C and a new domain specific language that is like you've actually you're working in a new domain that either doesn't exist before or is like to some degree unexplored and it makes total sense to make a domain specific language for mm -hmm. that yeah and the other thing is also that uh, this sort of freedom right is is so closely intertwined with the principles of of open source or free software in some sense it's it's an irony for instance that we have no control over 
the system that um, no control to change and the sort of storm in the way that Stallman really emphasizes uh, to change the the system that we use for open source software for free software and and so programmability in some sense is crucial to enabling that so one way of looking at it is once you sort of have a peer peer system or a decentralized system where you no longer rely on github or some similar service or company you have the right to change um your system because you you're the person who owns it um, but a programming language is really what gives you the ability to do it right was this a huge challenge is this the first time you've written an um, independent programming language no not the first time in fact it was third i would say um, damn <laughs> it's and now the sort of Haskell world has been changing considerably and more and more sort of cryptocurrency-related um, endeavors are, are using it. Uh, but to some extent, it is a feature of the Haskell world that in writing a programming language is a fairly common way of uh, having gainful employment. What does the language actually look like? Like, what is it similar to? How would somebody use it? It's very similar to Scheme or it's a dialect of Lisp. Um, and one of the decisions that we made is also not to try to reinvent the wheel. It feels like very often when there is a language that comes out that is a attached to a specific purpose, um, when someone tries to reinvent a language from scratch, it ends up being worse than the ones that we already know. And maybe JavaScript is an example, at least the early JavaScript, right? It had Brendan Eich been allowed to basically use Scheme, uh, we would have had a better front-end development experience. And so to some extent, again, that's this humility about sort of our ability to design something that's better than anything that currently exists. That said, uh, there are differences that are specific to our purpose. One important one is that the language has to be deterministic. It cannot have side effects. It cannot, every time someone, if you and I run the same program, the results should be exactly the same. And this is not true of existing of the main well-known dialects of Lisp. And so there was a reason to build our own. And another thing that's different is that there is this sort of um, reprogrammability. To back, back up a little, the way in which you can see uh, radical operating is that there are these sort of independent um, replicated state machines, little machines or programs that are a lot like a REPL session that you might have in, in your terminal. And so you can add new lines and they'll evaluate and they'll maybe define new variables and change uh, what's currently there. So it affect the state, but also give you a, an output. But these REPL sessions should really be alterable to become the specific, to transform themselves into the specific machine that you want them to. Right? So if you imagine a normal REPL session in a normal programming language, it's too easy for someone who's maybe malicious to really destroy the system that you have in place because they can redefine a variable or delete everything. And so really you want to be able to transform this this session, this REPL session, and what we call a machine, into something that's much more domain-specific very easily, so that, you know, the only allowable operations, for instance, are creating an issue, creating a comment on an issue, closing an issue, and things like that, so that you don't have full control. And moreover, so that those things themselves become easier, right? So if you can really sort of change the language in some sense dynamically so that it adapts itself to the specific use case in that um, instance of it, in that machine, 
um, or to continue the metaphor on, in that REPL session, um, then um, using it becomes easier. Right? Um, so there is a mechanism that we call eval evaluation redefinition or eval redefinition for short, that does that doesn't exist in in most Lisps. That is um, a feature that we have added that helps a lot in our own specific purposes. I'm curious what the stack, like the execution stack for Radical looks like. You have this Lisp-like language that I assume gets parsed into some form of IR in Haskell. Is it like, is there an IR? Is there an assembly? Like, how does it get down to actual execution on a machine? So currently it's all interpreted. Uh, so the way maybe to sort of talk more broadly about the architecture, the way we've designed it is that you have a particular IPNS link, and that's an IPFS key, a pointer, and that's a linked list or an append-only log of expressions in this language. So you store them textually on IPFS, and you can add new ones. And so anyone can submit um, new expressions to be evaluated. They have to go through the owner of the key, but this happens automatically. And so you have a log of the entire history of a program or the definition of a program on IPFS, and every client has a radical interpreter that they can then fetch this history from, evaluate it, and be sure that they're evaluating it to the same thing. So then you end up with maybe a, you know the state includes a list of issues, and so if you query the the function list issues you'll receive back um, the appropriate data structure and everyone will be sure to receive the same now the way in which the so we do currently only have an interpreter um and so there's no sort of like JIT compilation or, or compilation in general ahead of time compilation you just mentioned the key of the owner or the owner key and i'm, I'm curious because there's role management here there's permission management there has to be some public key infrastructure what does that look like and how does that work yeah so um currently so there are two layers so there's this notion of keys within ipfs itself and then there's also this notion of keys and authorization in radical and now the way it works on IPFS is that you have a particular key, and so we're using two parts of the IPFS infrastructure. One is IPFS itself, the traditional sort of content addressable uh, file system, and then on top of that, IPNS, which is, um, you can think of it as a pointer to a bit of data on IPFS, and that can be changed, but the person who changes that has to have the key that corresponds to the name of um, the pointer. That's at the IPFS IPNS layer. On top of that, within Radical itself, the expressions are signed. And um, so upon first using Radical, you create uh, a public key and a private key pair. Every expression that you send thereafter is signed with your key. So Radical has primitives for uh, cryptography, so you can verify a signature and check that it um, corresponds with what you want or expect. So right now we don't trade, we don't disseminate keys in any way except via Radical itself, right? So I can add, if I have uh, a project and I have a set of maintainers, I, as one of the maintainers, can say, oh, here's another, another public key, 
added to the set of maintainers and that's stored in the machine and this sort of diffuse radical program uh, and it's used to verify that future expressions sent by anyone are authorized to do so. So in that sense, it's a sort of a Byzantine fault-tolerant system in that the only Byzantine behavior that could possibly be done also needs to be signed. And so the person who receives that behavior can kind of go, well, you didn't sign this correctly, so I'm going to ignore it. Well, in some sense, it is, it's even simpler than that because of the IPFS layer, you don't share keys. And so there's a synchronization, a moment of synchronization, which is the owner, the person who, whose laptop has the keys, sort of is a point of synchronization. So there's consensus based on um, the fact that there is only a single key. Uh, at so the it, is, it is going through the owner at the end. Yeah. We have an idea. We have actually multiple ideas for how to have an extensible multi-writer system. And it doesn't seem, it seems like there are multiple plausible options, but we will have sort of always a permission set for any uh, machine. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. It, it feels like you should be able to achieve the same thing and have like not require a single entity that things go through. So yeah, basically making everything signed and saying that these are the authorities that are allowed to do things. Mm. You work around a lot of the problems. Yeah. Um, that you typically get in like blockchains. What is it like to actually use Radical? Like, what is what is the user journey for that? Hopefully, as as simple as possible. So you know, you install it via Brew or um, Debian packaging apt-get, um, and um, start once the sort of services in the background that are necessary to make the system work in your computer, um, and never again have to think about those. And then within a repository, you sort of use the command that initializes a radical project, rad project in it, and that adds the different components that make a repository. Right now, that's issues and patches and the Git repo itself. And from then, within that repository, if you ever write a rad issue list, that will list uh, the issues that anyone has opened in that repository, if you write a patch list, you'll similarly see all the patches that people have submitted. You know, you can create new patches and similarly, all, right now, all from the command line. Um, so to some extent, I personally think that this is much more convenient because it doesn't involve a context switch that we often have with a web UI. Um, so we don't have to sort of, you know, once you sort of have a patch ready, you don't have to switch to GitHub and click on a few buttons. You really just from your command line immediately submit it for review. And similarly, from your command, my, command line, immediately pull it down for review. Now, to be fair, this is still very much alpha software. And so a lot of this tooling is not as, as good as it can be. Um, but that is roughly the idea. You sort of have a, an interface to your issues, um, that's very much like the interface that most programmers have with Git. It's all from a command line involving. There's no way to do that right now with GitHub. Third-party tools, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the the so there are things like Hub and and Magit um, and things like that that do um, help a lot with that. Um, in some sense, I think one big difference is that we're really oriented towards making that experience as good as possible. Whereas it might be said that GitHub has 
an implicit interest in making you go to their website as often as possible. So you're really sort of attached to their UI, become accustomed to their UI, um, and are constantly reminded of their website and, and, and are using their interface so that they can, you know, if they ever choose to advertise something. Some of the other features of GitHub, though, are also kind of like the fame associated with like, I, I think this week I saw someone tweet like someone else's what is it? Activity? GitHub activity? What do you call those? It's a chart. I can't remember yeah. what the, that type of chart is called. <laughs> but, so somebody yeah. tweeted this like activity log chart thing. And it was kind of like, dude, you didn't make, you didn't do as much work as you said you did. Like there's, there's that. There's also stars. There's also like all of these other kind of game like features of GitHub. Mm-hmm. Do you guys touch on that at all? Or are you actually trying to get away from that? Yeah. So, um, so that's absolutely correct, right? There's an element of GitHub. GitHub, in some sense, is, is primarily the hub component. It's a, a set of tools for... It's like a for social a, platform. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think this was really more of an alpha release so that we the really basic functionality for co- code collaboration um, is there, and we've shown that it's possible. Uh, but it's easy to for us to we've already started thinking about this um implementing features that are more like social the social features that you have on github so for instance even something as simple as discovering new projects right right now the way in which you collaborate via radical is that someone sends you a hash and you copy and paste that and you check out that project. Um, but of course, sometimes you're just exploring and you want to see if there's something interesting that you don't yet know about. But that's very easy, again, because of the way in which radical, the stack was designed. Um, any of these new features are, are not only possible, but easy. Um, and so adding stars, for instance, as well, right? Um, is that still within the Radical preview, or is that OS coin? So the way I see it, the Radical project benefits the goals of OS coin, but really should be, to some extent, independent of it, right? So I don't think we will ever sort of design a feature or remove a feature because we feel like people should be using OS coin for that. And so really, we don't want people to be forced into, we're not trying to 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 sell them anything. Uh, we're not trying to force them into a particular path, but rather free them from other people who are trying to sell them something. Right? And so if someone thinks that stars is useful as a part of Radical, then either we or they, the Radical is after all itself open source, can implement it quite easily. Right? Yeah. They could potentially even implement it only for their own repo, right? That's true, yeah. And that's that's the other thing as well, right? Like, and even with the sort of listing of all known repositories, the way in which you conceive of it is that different people can have different li- listings, and you can aggregate them if you want. But there's no sort of authority on what the the listing is, right? So it's really sort of a much more sort of communal effort, and you can have um, organizations at a smaller level um, doing that. Do you ever imagine that you will write a UI for it, like a web UI or something else? Funnily enough, we did have one already. Um, it's the way in which we've designed the system makes it so easy to go there that for uh, a demo that we did a couple of months ago, we had um, a web UI for the issue system. Since that wasn't the priority for this release, that uh, of a week ago, uh, we didn't do any work on that, um, but we are starting work on that again, and it should be relatively easy and quick to have 
something a proof of concept web UI. And so, of course, doing it well in a way that people find uh, intuitive is is always a lot more work. And I guess the nice property of it is you don't actually need to host it anywhere. You can just put the UI on IPFS and it's a DAP. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah, you don't need to rely on any party hosting a website or anything. Yeah. The one thing I would say that's a little bit more complicated, reading issues is very easy because you don't have to trust anyone, right? So you know the, the hash of the content that you're looking for. Um, so if anyone provides you with that hash, you can trust it. Whereas writing is a little bit more complicated via web UI because of this issue of keys, right? So um, if you're using a terminal, then your keys used to sign transactions. Um, whereas with a web UI, you do have to f- figure out how it is that your transactions will be signed via the web UI. But I don't think that that's going to be an unsurmountable problem. No, I mean, that's something that Ethereum deals with all the time. Mm-hmm. And hardware wallets is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a good question, though. Like, if you lose your keys, do you just lose access to your whole repo? Uh, that is the case right now. So not access. So read-only access is, is always there. Yeah. The problem is that then you lose write access. Now, that's not the end of the world because you can still sort of fork your repo and start a fork your project and start again uh, with a different key and not from scratch right uh, it is somewhat annoying because you have to inform everyone that the correct key changed and you need to figure out how it is that people will believe you right if you say oh i i am julian and i'm uh, i'm saying that i lost my key like there's a question there how do i trust you um so of course it's not the most wonderful thing in the world if you lose your keys but still there's a path forward that's actually an interesting question though are you a user like do you have a user identifier in this so currently the only identifier that you have is your key your public key that um now of course it's a little bit inconvenient in in a variety of ways even though um the safest option because it's hard for me to just glance at a key and see if it's the same person as the person who I've learned to trust for some other reason. Mm. And so we've thought about implementing sort of pet names where you locally decide to have nicknames for certain keys. Um, And we've also um, previously had for ourselves within Monadic um, a shared pet name system um, that was itself a machine in the radical in, in the radical project and so um and so there are ways forward and this is a fairly well discussed and you know, a thoroughly discussed set of uh, options about this right this is this is to some extent an, an example of where um, a blockchain really would help to have, have consensus on names for instance right um but ultimately uh, the sort of cost of adding a blockchain solution might be big enough that that it's not worth it. And you could do what Urbit is doing, which is they have a mapping from all integers to yeah pet names. Yeah, and they're yeah. kind of strange sometimes, but like three words yeah. strung together by dashes. Yeah, yeah, and it's. Uh-huh. You know, they're readable, they're instantly understandable as a human, so it works much better than a long hash. <laughs> and, and one thing to be said for that is that, um, you know, once you're conceiving of a new technology, it's sometimes useful to imagine all of the places where things might go wrong. And I don't mean technically wrong, but sort of 
socially, economically wrong. Um, and in some sense, we've seen this with squatting over names, right? So with, with, um, domain, domain names. names, for instance, right? And, and so the moment you have the ability to choose any name, there's a problem there possibly where, um, people will squat on names and resell them. And, and so the urban solution has the advantage of it being equally bad for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, does ENS have a solution to that? No, they just allow squatting. I mean, okay. they just say if you pay for it, you're allowed oh. to squat. Hmm. Um, I mean, there's the whole issue of phishing with names as well. You pick a name that's super close to some other name, and yeah. suddenly people still can't tell the difference. Yeah. Hmm. Do you guys use Radical internally? Yeah, so uh, we did use it for issues um, for a while now. Um we actually had to backtrack a little bit um, with the release because, of course, there's this latent problem, which is that a lot of people might have trouble installing or understanding how to use it. Um, and if the only way of creating new issues is via Radical itself, they'll never be able to communicate that. So we had disabled issues on GitHub and have since re-enabled it because there was so much attention recently. Um, um, and I think that this is probably going to be the case for Radical specifically for, for a little while so, so we don't run into this problem. Um, I mean, I think that's kind of normal. You can't expect everyone to like immediately shift over yeah. and there's going to have to be this period of like actually using the old tool along yeah. with the new. I think one, one of the things that I appreciate about um, the people I work with is this like c combination of both principles and pragmatism. Uh, there are a lot of people who are really, really willing to put up with anything if they, if they believe in the principles behind their software. Um, and there are a lot of people who are not, would not sacrifice any convenience. Um, and in order to develop the best tools, you have to have a component of both. There's this element of sort of thinking, okay, like, um, we really need to have a CI system set up in order to honestly use our own tools. And so this sort of the sense that, you know, like we want the tools to be perfect before using it exclusively or not perfect, but but convenient before using it exclusively is something I appreciate. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I think right now for we say this in quite a number of places, but right now we're in, we're not there yet for a major project to switch to Radical exclusively, including Radical itself. Like that's actually it was one more question I had, which is like, can you make a private versus public like are those kinds of features in yet yeah yeah so this is something that a couple of people have asked me already and the answer is no we haven't set up a system for private re repositories you could always set up your own private ipfs exactly so that's that's the thing right so we never thought about it uh, and we never sort of we haven't yet started thinking about uh, about the roadmap to that but it is actually quite simple to just change the ipfs swarm key so that only the people you trust uh, or want to can see the the repository i mean i guess do you have to be kind of an advanced dev to under to be able to use it or do you think like people just learning how to code could actually use this so i think a familiarity with the command line is important but if git is something uh, the git the command line tool is something that you're familiar with um rad i think will be much easier git is sometimes actually often confusing to me and i think to a number of other people in corner cases it is actually um, relatively hard <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but if you if you can use git even with some frustration then hopefully you can use ra ra radical yeah. um do you call it RAD? So RAD is the command line tool. It has to be shorter so that awesome. people... <laughs> um, Actually, I do have a question about the name. Mm. Yeah, so where does the name come from? Yeah, so 
One thing that I want to make very clear is that it's not just the usual tech misspelling of something else. <laughs> um, it's the, not like radical. Uh, no. That's not what you mean. Okay. So ra radical <laughs> ends with I-C-L-E rather than I-C-A-L. But that's the term for um, the part of the seed that will eventually become the root. Um, and the idea is that the programming language, which is what radical applied to exclusively at some point um is um is that once you once you sow it it, it is the sort of starting point of any of these machines that grow and can uh, grow into something else grow into different programs and whatnot but that's the sort of very the seminal root in some sense cool um it's also nice that we get to have a command line tool that's called rad <laughs> 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 yeah. Good names are good. We <laughs> talked about this with Benedict Bunz. Like, Bulletproofs is a better name for a concept than the long academic title that I think they originally had. Mm. And it might have helped a little bit to get some attention to it. So, Radical oh. was last week, I think, just launched uh, in a sort of more official manner. I actually saw it on Hacker News when I drank my morning coffee. <laughs> it was kind of nice. Like, oh, I know these guys. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Um, what has the response been like? Because it's, you've managed to reach outside of the normal just blockchain circles and the blockchain bubble. What kind of people have been attracted to it so far and what kind of usage are you seeing? Um, yeah, so uh, to some extent, the people who've started contributing more and, and reaching out more are the people who have some experience in the P2P space. I don't think that that necessarily is related to interest. Uh, so much as um, background, right? So it's easier to sort of say, oh, like, to to suggest something about the architecture if you already have experience with the, with similar architectures. Um, now, it, the experience has been generally positive, but I haven't really come to, you know, we we have a sort of tutorial where there's a garden and you can contribute to it, and um, but this hasn't really sort of led me to any insights in, as to who, um, who 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 are the people who use Radical. That's quite common. Like, this is, a con I think, a conversation that a lot of groups have about, like, how, how do you track this and yeah. how should you track it? Like, yeah. if this is all, is where does it live right now? Is it like a repo that you download? Yeah. Yeah, so, so... Yeah, so I guess there, there are, you know, one other thing that's maybe relevant is also that we don't want to use cookies. It seems really like overkill to have our website require cookies just so we can count how many unique visitors we have. And so there's also this element of like even sort of basic analytics we, you know, would be useful, but really not worth putting cookies on other people's computers for. And so really the only sort of insight that we have is people talking on these various forum forums and to IRC and the mailing list and opening issues and, and submitting patches to the garden. I mean, that's a whole other topic about like analytics in the blockchain <laughs> yeah. space. Um, something we might want to cover at some point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very weird slightly contentious subject of you want to use web two tools to take over web two but you don't want to use web two tools because they are web two tools and that's what we're trying to get away from <laughs> and at the same time yeah. the other side of that is you don't know your customer 
So you might not always be able to cater. I think that's like, those are the two sides, right? Like, I mean, that's what I mean is like, we want Web3 to be successful, but to be successful, we need feedback and we need to know what people are doing, what they want and how we best engage. But the tools available are not yeah, good. Yeah. yeah, that that goes that applies, I think, for us a lot. Uh, you know, if you're if you put out a website and maybe something within it is confusing and people are getting lost in in the process, you know, um, you you have a system of analytics and maybe you can track that down and see. Yeah, I see. Maybe this button looks wrong, or maybe if it's a game, um, this is not intuitive, or it's crashing for a lot of people. Vlogs, and you have this entire infrastructure that really helps you track down what's a problem for users. Whereas in this sort of peer-to-peer space, they m- might not be connected to you in any way and you might not know that they exist, right? And uh, and so, and they would really sort of go counter to the very idea to sort of force them to submit logs. But I'd say uh, overall, the response that I've seen on forums and random places has been positive. I think a lot of people do really appreciate that always coin and radical as two systems have been separated that they're not uh you know muddled together and 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 become this sort of weird megalith <laughs> of a project <laughs> i do have one kind of last question related to that it's like is there any what do you do about licenses and stuff like that like if you want i might be totally off here but when you write open source code, there's sometimes licenses that you can associate with them. Yeah. I feel like, maybe I'm wrong here, but I feel like GitHub has some of these like kind of made for you like to input. Do you have anything like that? Uh, no, we don't. Okay. So really, you create your repository, add it's whatever license you want. super open. Yeah. Oh, you, can, you make it within the repository itself, the license. Yeah. That's is, how it works on GitHub too. But yeah, I mean, they provide like you can... You can add it automatically. Yeah. Can you? Yeah, you definitely can choose. Maybe. I don't know. And it has a little UI thing to show you what it is. But at at the end of the day, it's still a file in the repo. Okay. But speaking about blockchains, (laughs) there might be a blockchain at some point. So I'm curious to hear, what are the plans? I mean, I, I, I guess this isn't completely worked out yet, but how will OS Coin interact with Radical? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, there was a sense earlier in the project that they'd be very tightly integrated. Now that has changed. What we've sort of noticed is that you know there's the there's an independent reason to try to um, decentralize GitHub. You know, there's this concern that you know with the sort of monopoly power, they might not. I don't. I don't think by any means that they're currently doing this, but you know they have the power to insert backdoors into your code that's hosted there so that when you clone, you're cloning something that's backdoored. They have the power to look at your private repositories and steal ideas from from them if they so choose to. And I don't think that they're doing that right now. But the concern is that it's not that they're doing it right now, but the concern is that we have to start fighting monopolizing tendencies before people start abusing it right so microsoft and facebook facebook is maybe a good example where currently they are abusing their monopoly power in so many different ways and we're noticing that it's a little bit too late for us to easily flee to a different service provider because really the network effects and whatever else have really kicked in um so the motivation for radical sort of by itself is to sort of start that fight before it's too late in in some sense, the, the concern with the monopoly power that GitHub has is smaller if 
um, the ways in which it can be put to advantage um, are more limited. Now, there's a problem if we start working towards the future that OS Coin envisages, where uh, people will be rewarded for their open source contributions financially in a way that's hopefully sustainable and maybe enough for them to live on and continue working on open source in full time. There are multiple questions that, such as how do we um, decide uh, which projects to re reward and how much. And to some extent, they'll be based on ultimately popularity. How often is a project used? By how many people? Um, and the way in which popularity comes around is is is, is quite complex. Um, you know, sort of self promotion is a is a big thing going on. Podcasts helps, um, <laughs> but um, but one one thing that we have to sort of understand is that GitHub will have a lot of power over that. Um, and GitHub, you know, already has a, a sidebar um, in its initial page where it suggests related projects that you might be interested in. Um, and if that sort of suggestion is leading you in a particular direction to use certain tools and thereby rewarding the people whose tools you're using, um, there's now a sort of financial incentive, an added financial incentive to GitHub to maybe sell that position, that place, and as an advertisement, and thereby influence people's livelihoods. You can be relatively sure that uh, in most large companies, um, there are people whose job it is to figure out what to monetize and how. So it's an exercise that we should be engaged in as well to figure out before the sort of next step in some sort of evolution is how companies will be trying to monetize that and preventing that as soon as possible. Not to say that every form of monetization is, is problematic. Of course, the whole point of Westcoin is that people should be financially rewarded for their contributions. But it's something that we have to at least con consider. And so this sort of world in which GitHub becomes very, very powerful because it dominates the way in which open source is um, conceived of and, and so many livelihoods depend on that seems concerning. So the idea behind Radical is to sort of really disentangle open source from GitHub um, so that it can exist in a way that's entirely transparent, right? So that the decisions made are visible in the code and the open source code and can be contradicted and forked and, and discussed so that there isn't even more power going to GitHub and Microsoft to Google. It's so interesting because I feel like that is that struggle between like incentivization and non making something non-gameable. We hear about this in so many levels. And where you draw that line is tricky because you also would want, like sometimes those side businesses that form around these tools aren't necessarily evil mm. and they, they form, they are new forms of livelihood for other people. And I, but I think what you constantly hear is this desire to make things more fair. Yeah. I think that's like with a, uh, another good example, I think is the latest drama on like YouTube and the, the quote unquote YouTube algorithm choosing who gets to make money off their content mm -hmm. or not. And it's, it's like, it's a very weird system where like, YouTube is trying to optimize for content that will keep people on the platform for longer. So it, like it incentivizes a very specific type of behavior that is not necessarily good for the people who are actually consuming. But it's sort of like at the basis of it, it's it's not fair. It's not yeah. fair that someone who puts like a thousand hours into an animated short 
gets nothing from yeah. it because YouTube decides not nah, this is not good for our you know platform and doesn't attract more hours to watch. But at the same time, it's trying to cater. It like it itself is trying to give people seemingly what they want. Yeah. Like, yeah. Even if it's not healthy for them, like yeah. they seem to want it and they're yeah. going to seek it out anyway. Well, it's one, so interesting. One thing I would say that is that it's not a sort of a definitive sign that something is wrong, but one sort of intuition that maybe the monetization of something is problematic is precisely this idea of market power or monopoly, right? You know, it, indeed, I completely agree that, you know, like someone providing a service and, and being financially rewarded for that is not in itself problematic. But if they start doing something wrong, if they start doing something that we don't agree with, we should be able to easily change providers. And the moment there is market power, the moment there's monopolization, this becomes problematic. And so a lot of what I feel like we've been thinking about is precisely where technically, where do these sources of uh, natural monopolies come from, right? So if you, if you look at something like the, the the very basic internet infrastructure, right there you see some of it, right? And you, you see, in theory, every computer is the same. Every computer can act as a, a client or a server. But in reality, only some of them can because only some of them are have static IP addresses or are not behind that and firewalls, and only some of them are always on. So then there's a tendency to sort of have specific computers hold more information. And then because the information is not named, then it really the information becomes associated with the URL rather than the content. And so then you begin to... So there are all these sort of processes that you see. Another one, another one that I think is very, very interesting is the idea of trust. You know, if I have my email, um, I really want to trust, and it's a web UI and I'm not downloading it locally, I really need to trust my email provider because if they lose the data, it's that's really, really bad. And so a natural tendency there is to say, well, you know, there's this really big company that does it. And so if they were to screw it up, it would be a really, really big deal. Whereas if there are three people who are, you know, one person in their basement who's providing a service, I can't do any, I have no guarantee that they won't stop doing it. And so then we sort of flock towards a specific service provider because of this idea of trust. And then again, end up in a situation where the moment that they do do something wrong, which they have repeatedly proven to do, it's too late, right? And so there are all these sort of small sort of architectural technical components that influence what I see of as one of the main concerns, which is the tendency towards monopolization, not monetization itself, but monopolization. Some of that is technical, but then some of it is perception hmm. or sort of assuming like a big company won't do bad because if they do bad, they, you could sue them for more, especially if they're Americans. So like, that's also kind of the thinking It's like, yeah. well, they will really protect because, you know, they're so big, they'll get in a lot of trouble, yeah. class action suit. And what, what we realize <laughs> is in fact, the bigger they are, the less trouble they'll get into, right? Because again, if... Um, yes like and no. It's more like the they, might get, they might get into a lot of trouble. It's just that it doesn't hurt them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It's like they'll still pay a lot. Like the numbers are insane, but the percentage of the revenue is tiny. So but, it doesn't matter. And similarly, matter. you know, if, 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 if the sort of Facebook series of revelations had happened very early in the days of Facebook, no one would have continued using it. So the fact that it's bigger, um, the fact that it already has a network effect, uh, means that it's really difficult to move away. So in some sense, you know, like you might be sued for more in terms of, in absolute um, monetary terms, mm -hmm. but maybe not in terms of percentage of revenue. But um, 
but in other ways you'll still stay on it (laughs) i think on that note i think we've run out of time actually it's not even on that note i think we could continue talking but i think we we have to wrap it up cool um but i want to say thank you so much for visiting the podcast thank you so much for having me thank you very much thanks and uh to our listeners thanks for listening thanks for listening